All right, everyone, it is time to get into God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. So Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. And let me just start off with this. A critic of the Bible having read through numerous times, said, it appears that the God of the Bible loves rules so much that he created human beings simply in order to keep the rules. Now, that would actually be funny if it weren't actually so sad and pervasive. Many people in the world believe that the Bible is primarily a book of rules that teach us what we must do in order to be pleasing to God. But what I want to show you today is that Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6 prepares us to understand the entire Bible and especially all the rules, all the 613 rules of the Old Testament plus all the many we find in the New Testament, that how you and I look at the rules is fundamentally important to our understanding of God, of ourselves, and of our place in the world. And so let's go ahead and read the text together. We'll pray and we'll get into this morning's study. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, and had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we just pray that the Holy Spirit would be our guide and would be our teacher. Lord, I just pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. We pray that you would speak through these words of Scripture this morning that you would use the human act of preaching as a means of communicating your truth in a timely way to your people. Lord, we pray that if we have any misunderstandings this morning about you, about who you are, about your heart for us, and about your word and how to understand it rightly, Lord, we pray that we would be open to correction. Lord, we pray that if in any way we are in error, that you would set us straight this morning. And Lord, I pray we would be open to being pleasantly surprised at the goodness of your word 
And I just pray for a blessing now over this time of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, so as I started off, many people actually believe the Bible is primarily a book of rules, and they believe that the rules teach how we can make God love us. A, a way to sort of encapsulate it from a practical perspective is to say, I obey, therefore God loves me. The funny thing too is it's not just like non-Christians or this skeptical Bible scholar that I mentioned, but I actually find that many churchgoers also professing believers look at the Bible as primarily a book of rules and that they must keep all the rules in order for God to respond in love. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually grew up in a Christian home. More than that, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And even though I would actually say, by the way, that I went to, I grew up in a good Bible teaching church, I think my parents taught me the word of God rightly, at least generally in, in all the essentials. And yet somehow, some way, I got the impression as, as a boy, particularly a teenager, that the Bible was primarily a book of rules and that God was a harsh taskmaster and that all the rules were a burden that he laid on me that I would have to try to keep and if I didn't keep them all, then I wouldn't meet God's approval and God wouldn't love me. Now, I believe that if I grew up in a Christian home and I grew up in a pastor's household and I was taught the word of God rightly, and yet somehow, some way, I still got this erroneous view of the Bible and of the rules and of how God looks at us, I think there's a very good chance this morning that either you a family member, a friend, or a coworker, someone you know, also has this wrong view of the Bible. And so as we look at uh, Exodus 19, I think it's important to keep in mind what the context is, what the broader context is. So first of all, even if you're not familiar with Exodus 19, I can almost bet that you are familiar with Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is where the world-famous Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words or Ten Pronouncements are given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then what follows from chapter 20 on to chapter 24 is a list of rules. It's a bunch of rules, chapters full of rules. And then, of course, we see the rest of the Pentateuch as well. There are many, many, many more rules added on. And then as one progresses through the Bible, the prophets remind us of the rules. Then we get to the New Testament and there are new rules to keep there as well. And so I think we should acknowledge that the Bible certainly does have a lot of rules. There's a lot of things that God says we ought to do, that we must do, that we need to do, that we need to stop doing. So we're not ignoring the obvious, namely that there's many rules or commandments in the Bible. But what I'm saying this morning is understanding why they are there, what they say about God, and how they relate us to God or how they don't relate us to God, that's where the pivotal error comes in. 
And this morning's text, which happens just before chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, is so important. I believe knowing chapter 19 has a fundamental changing way of looking at the Ten Commandments and everything that follows. In other words, if the Bible began with the Ten Commandments, I think there's a good argument to be made that we got the Bible's really about rules and that we got to keep these rules in order for God to love us. But if Exodus 19 takes place before all the commandments are given, not to mention the rest of Genesis in the beginning of Exodus, if that had not come first, I believe that view would be viable. But what we're going to see this morning is we have a biblical view that is fundamentally different than this idea of the Bible being all about rules and that we must obey in order for God to love us. So there's three points I want to make as we walk through the first six verses of chapter 19. And my first point is this. We obey because the Lord keeps his promises. Number one, we obey because the Lord keeps his promises. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, what we have in Exodus 19, 1 through, 1 through 2 is fulfilled prophecy. It's a fulfilled promise and fulfilled prophecy. Now, we know Moses was already at Mount Sinai. If you remember, that's where the famous burning bush incident happens. But now in Exodus 19, 1 through 2, all of Israel that were slaves in Egypt, they are now in the very same place where God spoke to Moses. They are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, real quickly, I want you to mark your place in Exodus 19, and I want you to turn to the left to Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Just turn to the left, hold that place, and turn to Exodus 3. And I just want to read two verses to you. Exodus 3, 11 through 12. Listen to this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he, the Lord, said, I will certainly be with you. Pay attention to this, friends. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Turn back to Exodus 19. Right here in Exodus 19, verses 1 and 2, we have the fulfillment of the prophecy and promise of Exodus 3, 11 through 12. When God had called Moses to leave the wilderness of Midian, and to go back to Egypt and to deliver his people. He said, one of the ways you will know it's me and that the people will know it's me. I'm making a promise. I'm making a prediction to you, Moses. You're not only going to go to Egypt. You're not only going to deliver them. You're going to bring them right back to this very place. And friends, that is exactly what God did. Now notice that prior 
to God giving Israel commandments, rules that they are to obey, what we have first is this idea of God giving his promises to us and fulfilling them. So number one, we obey the Lord because he keeps his promises. Now, I was thinking about it. If you, I think we all know promises are important, but maybe if you're, as an adult, you probably get jaded about promises, don't you? How many broken promises have people made to you? How many times, whether it's parents or family members or a spouse or ex-spouse or whoever it might be, they kept, they made promises and then they broke it. And sometimes as adults, we get jaded and we just, we no longer really count on anything. We, we know we need to be able to trust people in order to get anything done, to have any kind of meaningful relationship, whether personal or business. But I think we're also kind of jaded and we just, we don't necessarily count on promises as much as we once did. But being a parent of children, and I still have small children living with us at home, and I was thinking about it the other day, and promises are everything to children. As a matter of fact, it seems to be something that's innate in human beings. It's innate in children. They love promises. They need promises. They delight in promises. And oh, they will hold you to promises. As a matter, as a matter of fact, my kids are so into promises, they try to make me promise everything that I say. So they ask, hey dad, um, after lunch, can I, if I eat my lunch, can I have a treat? And I go, yeah, I think so. So you promise? And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, why are we graduating this issue of a treat after lunchtime to the level of promise? Or, you know, uh, I'll make just a contingent plan in my mind as an adult. Oh, hey, uh, let, we'll plan on going to the park in the afternoon. But that's assuming it's not 110 degrees outside, which it's actually been lately. And then if it's 110, I assume nobody would want me to, to keep that promise because they'd be just horrible, miserable conditions. But my children are funny. They still look at that as a promise. Daddy, you promised. Is that a promise, Daddy? Children, human beings, are promise desirers. They're not as good about keeping promises, but as human beings, we do. We want promises to be made. But as adults, we learn that promises, it sounds like, are made to be broken. And so we start to give up on promises. But one of the things that's going to prompt obedience, that's going to frame what the rules are for and what they're a response to, is this idea that we obey because we already have a God who keeps his promises. I know most of you know I share stories of my dad, and my, my dad was my hero. Uh, you know, more than athletes, more than uh, pastors out there, megachurch pastors or whoever it is, my hero was my dad. And many of you know that my dad died of cancer 17 years ago now, back in 2003. And there's so many 
questions and situations in life I wish he were here for. I wish I would be able to say, hey, dad, when you were pastoring, uh, what did you do in this situation? Or, or what would you advise? Or, hey, dad, as a husband, how would you how would you deal with this issue? Or, hey, dad, as a father with kids uh, that are that are stubborn and difficult, what, what would you do? How, how would you raise them? I, I wasn't able to ans- ask him all those questions. But fortunately, God gave us a few years where I had come back to the Lord as a young adult, and I was able to ask my dad some questions. And I remember I was single at the time, and I remember as I was really starting to mull over the idea of marriage. Because prior to being converted by the gospel, being converted by Christ, I did not want to get married. I thought marriage sounded terrible. It's like the kind of thing you do when you can't date anymore or something like that. The idea of getting married, it literally, it just scared the heck out of me. Didn't want anything to do with it. But after I came to Christ, the Lord changed me and, and I, I started to desire to be married. And so I remember as a single man, I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad. When you married mom, why did you marry her? What, what, what were you looking for? And my dad shared a couple of things with me, and they were pretty standard reasons that many people give for getting married. But then I followed up and I asked him one more question. I said, Dad, so those many years ago, you, you married mom because of this, this, and this. Now, you know, 20-something years later, through all the thick and thin, the ups and downs of life, What's the most important thing about mom, her quality? And he said one word, loyalty. Loyalty. What is loyalty? Loyalty is fidelity. And ultimately, it is fidelity to one's promises. That when a person makes vows at an altar, they keep them. They don't have to be perfect people. They're not going to be. They're going to make mistakes. But what we need and what we ultimately value is promises, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity to promises. Because look, people get married for all kinds of reasons and and some people, they, they do. They're like, oh, I married him uh, because he was handsome. I married her because she was beautiful. Uh, I married him or her because they were smart. I married him or her because they were funny. But if they're not faithful and they don't keep their promises, it ruins every other quality. And there's nothing more attractive in the long run, maybe not in the beginning, but to me, there's nothing more attractive in the long run than fidelity to one's promises. And so when we think about rules, we're, it's not like the rules begin with us. We just start keeping rules. No, we keep the rules because first we have a God who has kept his promises to us. We obey because we have a God, the Lord, who keeps his promises. Number two, We obey because the Lord has freely saved us by grace. Number two, we obey because the Lord has freely saved us by his grace. Look at verses three and four. Moses writes, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, 
you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, friends, look again real quick at verse 4. What is it we have done? What rule is there in verse 4? What commandment is given in verse 4? What is it we need to do in verse 4 to get God to show us his grace? What commandment, what rule, what act of righteousness must we do here in verse 4 in order for God to save us? If you look, you'll find that the answer is nothing. Nothing. Verse 4 is a story of what God has done. This is not a story of Israel. Go keep all the rules. Go clean yourself up. Go get pure. Go get holy. Go start living better than all the pagan neighbors around you in Egypt and in Canaan. And then I will come and save you freely by my grace. No, friends. Verse 4 says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. God did not wait for Israel to free themselves. Rather, when Israel was enslaved, God set them free by his grace. The same is true of you and I. The Bible teaches that we too are enslaved. Not perhaps physically to Egypt, but we are enslaved to sin and to death and to the world. And the Bible does not teach, here's all the rules, and if you keep all the rules, then you'll be saved from sin. Then you will have eternal life. Then you will be, you'll be able to escape the clutches of the world. No, friends. The message of the Bible from beginning to end here in Exodus 19 and continuing out through the rest of the law code of the Pentateuch is that it is God who initiates. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Notice it says, not for God so will love the world, but past tense, for God has loved the world. He has already demonstrated it. He has already sent his son into the world. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans that God demonstrates his kind of love, agape love, the love of God. He demonstrates his love in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The message of Exodus 19, verse 4, is that you do not save yourself, friends. You don't save yourself. And if that's true, that means if you and I are looking at the rules of the Bible, and there are many, but if we're looking at them wrongly, if we're looking and saying, if I want to be saved out of Egypt, if I want to get out of this sin, if I want to get out of sinfulness, if I want to escape the clutches of Satan, if I want to avoid the mold that the world is always pressing in and trying to mold me into, if I want to be delivered from that, 
then I need to keep this commandment and this one 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 and on and on and on and on and then I will be saved. Friends, the message of the Bible is God is reaching out and he's saving even now by his free sovereign grace. God is doing it. He says to Israel, before he gives them the commandments, notice that, before the Ten Commandments, before he gives them any of those things, he says to Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Deliverance from sin and death in the world is what God does. And it is not a response to anything we do. It is not a response to keeping all of the commandments. It is simply a result of the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God extended towards undeserving sinners like you and I. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And notice he goes on to say, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. I love this picture. It's the idea of a mother eagle who is strong and who is capable of long endurance and flight, teaching her eaglets, the little eaglets that are not strong enough to fly. They cannot fly. And it's this picture of the mother spreading her wings and bearing up the eaglets who cannot fly for themselves. We know that this is true about little eaglets. When they are first born, they cannot fly. And if they cannot fly, that means most likely they're not going to survive. Because that means they can't avoid predators. They can't fly away if a predator crawls up the tree or dives down. It means they cannot feed and provide for their own needs because they can't fly and go find prey to eat and bring back to the nest. An eaglet is incapable of defending itself nor providing for itself. And the Lord is like a mother eagle who on the wings of the Lord, the Lord provides for his people. The Lord rescues you. The Lord delivers you. Once again, not because of any work of righteousness which you have done, not because you kept all the Ten Commandments, not because you kept the next 603 of the Old Testament, nor the many hundreds that are actually in the New Covenant as well. No. You are saved. You are delivered from Egypt. You are bore on eagle's wings. And notice, and God brought you to his, himself. That is what God is saying to Israel. Fundamentally, what God wants Israel to know is, yes, there's rules. And yes, there's commandments. But do not ever, ever, ever misunderstand that the rules are what caused me to love you. Rather, God says, I loved you because I loved you. I had mercy on you because I had mercy on you. God simply from his free grace has chosen to love you. This is why the presence of godly, loving parents in the home is so important. I think the more that we have a temporary picture of this 
in life, in human relationships. Because you see, God designs marriage and the family to be a living portrait, a living parable, a living painting of what the gospel and grace and love of God should look like. That is why marriage and the family are so important. It is not because marriage is ultimate. It certainly isn't. It is not because family, nuclear family, is ultimate. It is not. But rather, human marriage and family matter because God matters. The gospel matters. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is actually a mystery given to man to speak of Christ and the church. It is meant to be a living parable that teaches children about the love of God. You see, the less somebody had this growing up, and I know that's the case for some of you, perhaps most of you, and certainly many in society, many grow up without this loving, godly presence of love in, in their homes. And what happens is when you fail to do that, when you have an absent parent, or you have a parent who only shows love when you do everything right, is you start to believe that about God. If my mother and father only love me when I get really good grades, if they only love me if I do everything right, every task, if they only love me if I go the course in life they want me to go, if they only love me, then, then people naturally take that view of love and grace and they project it onto God. And so if you have a parent that didn't love you, or only loved you when you kept all the rules, then people believe that about God. And that is why it is so helpful. It doesn't force or make under compulsion make children become Christians, but it helps them. When you love your children and your children know that even when they fail, even when they sin, when they fall on their face, they get bad grades, they take a course in life that you don't prefer, that you still love them. It is so important because that is God's love for us. We are not doing all these things in order to be saved. Rather, we are saved because of the free grace of God. Number three. We obey in order to represent God rightly in the world. Number three, we obey in order to represent God rightly in the world. Look at verses five and six. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So what we see here again is it's not keeping the commandments and the rules that cause God to save Israel and that cause God to extend his grace. Rather, it is the opposite. It is because God first keeps his promises. It is first because God extends his grace. And now we see it is because God is giving us a vocation. The rules are about fulfilling our calling as God's children. 
I want to point out that what we have here in verse 5 is one of the most explicit statements of monotheism in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 5. You shall be a treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. In the pagan worldview, the world was divided up amongst the many gods. Just like there were many tribes, there were many clans, there were even different city-states and kingdoms arising, there were many gods in the world to the pagan mind. But the view of Israel, the view of Yahweh, is there's only one God, and the entire earth and everything in it belongs to God. So we have an explicit statement of monotheism here in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, notice that God has not yet gone into all the details regarding the laws. He's going to do that later, beginning in chapter 20. But right now, what he does in verse 5 and 6 is he begins to touch on the idea of the rules, commandments. The first four verses don't even mention it. It is all about what God has done. Salvation always begins with God, never with what we do. But notice, he does bring in commandments. But what's the purpose of them? What's the point of the commandments? Is it to make us right with God? Is that is what he's saying here? Do we keep the rules because then God will love us? Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Notice what he says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in other words, the commandments are given after, after being loved by God, after receiving the grace of God, after being saved out of sin and slavery and death and freed from the mold of the world, after God has done all of that freely by his love and his grace, he gives rules and commandments. Why? So you can rightly represent God in the world. Now, I want to connect this idea of Israel serving as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you remember, in the beginning, God created man. And why did God create man? What was the nature of man? What was the purpose of man? Genesis 1 tells us that man was made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made man. And he made man and gave him dominion over all the earth. In other words, God made man to represent him in the world and to exercise God's character and goodness and control over the world. But what happens is sin comes in and it mars and distorts the image of God. We were made to rule on behalf of God in the world. But sin comes in and it completely twists and distorts that. And sometimes, unfortunately, in history, we see it, it is marred almost beyond comprehension. By the grace of God, by the restraining work of the Holy Spirit throughout world history, we've seen times in history where cultures seem to thrive, and even though they're certainly not Christian, and yet they produce great works of art, they come up with great 
political and social ideals. Uh, some laws actually come into existence that are better than previously existing laws. So by God's grace, even though many nations are not and have not been Christian, yet we've seen God's mercy. And yet also in history, we've seen time when God allowed people to go their own way. Certainly in recent history, as we look at Nazi Germany, we see an example of how far gone it seems the image of God can be. Though I would always want to maintain that the image of God in sinful fallen man is not completely erased, but it is certainly can get so close to the point where it's so distorted, it is almost beyond any recognition whatsoever. And so what God is doing here is he's restoring through Israel. His vocation is restoring the Garden of Eden. He's restoring the original vocation of man. Adam was in essence a priest representing God. And so what God is saying now in a fallen world, he's redeeming a people for himself. And the function of a priest was what? The function of a priest was to represent the, the people to God and the God to people. And so God is saying, Israel, now that I've already loved you, now that I've already saved you, even though you've done nothing for me and I didn't owe you anything and you had no claims on me whatsoever, but because I'm a promise-keeping God and I made promises to your fathers, your ancestors, and because I'm a God who extends his grace freely, I'm now going to give you these rules and commandments that will enable you to fulfill the reason you were made. In other words, as human beings, we have a calling in life. We were made for a purpose. And friends, many times, even Christians, when they think about vocation, they think about specific tasks, uh, teaching the Bible, uh, doing business, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a, a stay-at-home mom, or, or whatever the case might be. And certainly those are vehicles of it. But I would say more fundamentally, because especially for some of you that might be retired and you go, well, that, that task that I always saw is, is my ministry as Christian. I'm not doing that anymore. And, be, and perhaps some of you, some of you have launched into amazing missions organizations. Some of you have volunteered your time in the local church and things of that nature. But what about people who feel like I, I don't have a task? There's no specific task, regular task, ongoing task that I do that, that I think that God's using me. But friends, let me just remind you, more fundamental than any specific task is this broader idea of bearing the image of God. Your fundamental calling as a Christian is simply to represent God. So even for those of you that are retired or, or sometimes, uh, like my father, uh, got so sick at the end of his life, he couldn't go anywhere. He, he couldn't do it. He could barely do anything. At the end of his ministry, he was wheeling an oxygen tank into the pulpit on Sunday mornings because he couldn't breathe and he couldn't even preach the word of God without an oxygen tank. And it got to the point where even that was not enough. He simply could not do the normal task he had been called to do. And so in these end-of-life scenarios, when people are sick, when they're down, when they're unemployed, if your vision of your calling is only the tasks you do for God, you're going to enter seasons of life in which you feel, even as a Christian, that you have no purpose. 
But I want to affirm with you this morning what God is telling Israel here in Exodus 19, by, verses 5 and 6. Fundamentally, you are to, we are to be priests of God, all of us. And that simply means representing God to the world. Do what he says in his word. Be the kind of man or woman he calls you to be in terms of your character and the kinds of things you do and the way you do it. And simply represent God to people. So if you're sick, do you have a nurse coming to visit you? Are you going to the doctors? Is there a doctor you talk to? Do you have any family? Do you have any children or grandchildren? Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a roommate? Is there anyone, any human being you come into contact with? Chances are you do. And if not in person, then even online. And your fundamental calling, vocation, is to be a priest of God to represent God to others. And we do that by simply obeying the Lord and what he tells us to do. Now, some would say, okay, Pastor Mike, that's great for Israel, for Old Testament Israel, but I don't think that applies to us today. Friends, not only did this apply to Old Testament Israel, the New Testament says that this applies to all of us who are in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Real quickly, hold this place in 1 Peter 2 and turn to the back of the New Testament. Again, if you don't want to, just write this down. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 9. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 9. And what I want to show you is 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, writing to Christians, to the New Testament church, to those like us who have placed faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, God keeping his promises through Jesus, all of God's promises, Paul says in Corinthians, are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the place where the promises of God are fulfilled. The grace of God is given and dispensed fully and finally in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's also through Christ through whom we've been given the new vocation of God as kings and priests. And look at this. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 1 through 9, and I want you to notice in verse 9, Peter quotes this very verse in Exodus before us this morning and applies it to you and I. The Apostle Peter writes, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Notice once again, it's the tasting of the graciousness and goodness of God that precedes obedience. Coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, 
the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. Listen, beloved, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, that is Egypt, into his marvelous light. Notice, friends, what the commandments are for. We obey because this is who we are. We are already children of God by grace through faith in the promise keeping God in Jesus Christ. We do not obey God in order for God to love us. God loves us and therefore we obey. Beloved, we keep God's commandments. We focus on his rules, not because we need to do this in order to beg an unloving, harsh God in order for him to give us a moment of his time, but rather we have the most loving, gracious God one could ever possibly imagine, indeed better than any earthly father, and he has already gone before you, and he has prepared the way, and he's saving you out of Egypt. He is saving you from the pain of sin and death. He's rescuing you from the mold of the world, and he is doing all of this by his grace, without any response from you. And as partnership, because he loves you, and because he loves you, he refuses to leave you and I as we are. He loves us as we are, but because he loves us, he refuses to leave us as we are. And so he gives us the rules and the commandments in Scripture so that we can rightly represent him in the world. He wants you to fulfill your calling. The reason you were made was to be a priesthood to God. Like Israel was called, but often failed to do. God, through Christ, the better high priest, the better Moses, the prophet after the order of Melchizedek, who Scripture says lives forever to make intercession for us. And so we, who can come before God through a new and living way, are then, only then, after then, given the various rules and commandments of Scripture so that we can be who we are. We can fulfill who we are meant to be. We can bear the image of God, the image of Christ, rightly to the world, and so be used by God to point people to him. Friends, I know we all know there's plenty of things in life that give us some sense of joy. What do you like to do? What do you like to do for fun? I know that before this whole COVID thing, there were so many things we took for granted. One of the things I missed most about the whole COVID thing, I know this sounds so simple, but I'll, can I get an amen to this? When this whole COVID thing hit and everything was shutting down, I missed going out to a restaurant, sitting down, picking up a menu, ordering food, and sharing a meal with family or friends. I, I just, I missed that so much. It was a simple thing, a basic thing that I totally took for granted, to be perfectly honest with you. And then having it taken away, as much as I didn't like that, 
I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the trials I've gone through because it's taught me to be thankful for everything. Friends, when we have everything, we tend to be less thankful. It's the strangest thing. Somebody can have abundance, and you might think it would be logical then that you're more thankful. But the irony is that the opposite is true. Many times, the more people have, the less thankful they are. I know many friends have shared with me as they've traveled in places in the world, whether it's impoverished areas of India or Africa, stories where people told me, do you realize, Pastor Mike, in my village, my friend was from Uganda, Africa, Pastor Mike, do you realize when I gave one pair of Levi's jeans to the children in my village, they all fell down on their knees, lifted up their arms, and wept and sang praises to God over one pair of jeans? How many pairs of jeans do you have in your closet this morning, friends? How many of those pairs of jeans have you wept over with arms uplifted in praise to God? Friends, it is a sad truth that when there is abundance, there is often a lack of thankfulness. One of the things God has been sovereignly doing through this season of famine, if I can put it that way, is teaching his people to be thankful for each and every little thing, to take nothing for granted in life, nothing, and to acknowledge God in everything. And in that thankfulness, when we become people who are thankful, and I think supremely for this, that even when those things are taken from us, even if I lose the ability to go eat in a restaurant, can I still be thankful? If you're a worldly person, the world can take away your reason for thanks. Let me say that again. If you're a worldly person, the world can take away your reason for thanks. But if you are a godly person, if you're a Jesus person, then the world can never take away what you and I have to be most thankful for. You ask me what I'm thankful for, I would tell you, Jesus. I am thankful that through the thick and thin of everything that's gone on over the last five months in this crazy, tumultuous season is I've gotten more of Jesus. Jesus is more precious to me. I'm seeing the promises and faithfulness of God more now than I ever have in my life. I'm seeing the graciousness of God extended towards me when I've had wrong attitudes about what's going on and I've been frustrated and I've even been angry at things going on in the world and upset and, and, and ask God, why are you allowing this? God, why are you doing this? God, I think you, you really should be giving us this right now. Friends, I am so thankful to God for his goodness. And I'm thankful that ultimately what causes us to fulfill our purpose is nothing that the world can take away from us, but rather it is the rules and commandments that God gives us that we can live for God. We can glorify God. If we are obeying God, we understand I'm not doing this in order for God to love me, but because God loves me, I am doing this. Friends, let me just close with this reminder, many people, including ourselves, and this is, I think, just what sin in the heart does, 
Sin in the heart comes to the Bible and it wants to believe God is telling me to do all this or he won't love me. God gives me all the commandments and rules and then I can be saved. But the gospel of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ says to us yesterday, today, and forever, you have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. And so if anyone this morning has this idea, maybe you have this idea, maybe you've been telling yourself, if I obey God, then he will love me. Friends, I want you to know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. The truth of God, the truth of the Bible is this. God loves you, therefore, obey him. God already loves you. He's already sent Christ to die for you. And if he sent Christ to die for you when you were at your worst, how much more now as we respond to him in faith, as he gives us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee and down payment of our eternal inheritance, and as he's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure, and he's given us his commandments in order to more and more rightly reflect and represent him in the world, how much more can we know that he loves us? Friends, I want to end with telling you that God is going to keep his promises to you today. This week, there's nothing that can happen. There's nothing the government can do. There's nothing the doctor can do. There's nothing your family can do. There's nothing you can do that is going to keep God from being faithful to his promises. So obey God, knowing he's going to keep his promises to you out of joy and delight. Friends, know that you're going to fail this week. You're going to sin in certain areas. If not outwardly, then inwardly in terms of your attitude. Maybe the way you uh, look at other people, the way you wrongly look at people in your life that God has put in a place of authority over you. You're going to sin in areas. Friends, I want you to know God loves you and you are saved by grace. By grace you have been saved. And lastly, again, friends, when you read the Bible and you read the things that we're told to do, Remember this, God's giving you these rules and commandments as a gift, not a curse. And it's a gift because it enables you to fulfill your calling and your reason for being in the world. And so friends, let us praise the Lord together for his word, for his grace, and for his commandments he's given to us for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we do, we thank you and praise you that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Lord, even those of us who believe the Bible is your word, yet because of sin, sometimes we can wrongly divide it. We can misunderstand it. Lord, we can look at all the many, many rules, the hundreds of rules that are indeed in the scripture, and we can get this wrong idea that you are telling us you don't love us until we do everything right. But Lord, let us be reminded this morning, just as you told Israel, before you gave them all the commandments, you reminded them, I've already loved you.
I've already kept my promises to you. I've already given you grace that was undeserved and unmerited. And I am now, only after I've done all that for you and shown my love, I'm going to give you these commandments so that you can know how to respond to my unmerited favor. So Lord, I pray that we would see this week obedience to you as a delight, as not an obstacle to love, but rather the result of being loved by God through Jesus Christ. Lord, help my brothers and sisters, myself included, to delight in your law. Help us to delight in the things you've commanded us to do because these things bring glory to you. They bless others and point others to Christ and they cause us to fulfill our calling in this world. So Lord, I pray for a blessing over your people this morning. Reaffirm them and assure them of your love and cause them to walk in your way and to keep your statutes and to represent you to a world that is so desperately lost and in need of Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.